I'm very glad to be with you this morning. When Aubrey first asked me to come, I was, uh, I didn't hesitate. I really, I'd wanted to see what uh, he been talking about here, what a wonderful church you had, and how God was moving in your midst, and I wanted to be here with you. And I also, when I looked at the passages that we were considering this morning, there was, there was something about all of the passages that really had been touching my heart. And really dealing with an issue that God has been dealing with, with me for quite, quite a while. And so, and that's that God is calling us to live what most people would call a radical, extreme Christian life. And I think we're going to see from the passage in Romans this morning that really it's the normal, it should be the normal Christian life. And so as we look at this word this morning, let's open up with prayer. Father, we invite you and the power of your Holy Spirit to move in our midst this morning. We invite you, Lord, to speak to us, to open up our hearts. And Father, these dear ones do not need to hear from me this morning. But Lord, we need to hear from you. And so we invite you to rain down upon us in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we'll be closely considering this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. And this is one of those passages that really does not leave a lot of doubt as to what Paul is trying to convey to us. Paul is calling us to, as I said earlier, extreme Christianity. And I was just, you know, that's a a word we use a lot. We have a lot of catchwords we use in our culture now, and extreme is one of them. I mean, we have extreme uh, weight loss, which I need to take more seriously. We have extreme makeovers, whether it's body or whether it's it's a house, you know, I have shows built about houses being, being made uh, over and a uh, beautiful job. And I, I was, uh, as I looked online, I saw we even have extreme couponing. For those of you who, who really want to save money like my wife does, so God bless her. But just out of curiosity, I, I googled extreme Christianity to see what what people would, would think was extreme. And really, I was surprised a bit. I mean, on, some, on, on one avenue, I wasn't. But, I mean, the idea was usually, and what was considered extreme was not extreme practice, but extreme views. I mean, whether it be things like uh, you believe in creation science versus evolution. Or a big one, uh, as far as the Christian stance on sexual purity. Our sexual identity is another big one in our culture. That Christianity is often considered extreme. The authority of the Bible to speak to the moral issues of our lives was considered extreme. And the fact that Jesus claims to be the, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father was considered extreme. But one thing I was disappointed about, there was no examples of, no one was complaining that there were Christians out there that were living too extreme. That they were doing extreme things in the name of Christ. Nobody was complaining about that. And I found that troubling. You know why? 
Because just a cursory look at the Gospels reveals that what Jesus came to do to deal with our sin so that bridge might be built back to the Father, what he was willing to do was extreme. But you know what? The big thing as well for us this morning is that Jesus was pointing to himself as the model of how we ought to live. And that's extreme. And this morning's passage is an example of living in a radical way. Well beyond the average. Because it has to do with surrendering who we are for the sake of who God is. But before we approach our, our passage for this morning in Romans 6, 3 through 11, it will be helpful to look back to the beginning of the chapter kind of to set the context. So let's just read together. I'll read to you. You don't have to look it up. You can if you want to. But Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Paul had introduced this idea of, of where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more in, in the previous chapter in Romans 5.20. And he now, he now wonders if someone might take this truth to imply that it doesn't really matter how that we live our lives because, well, if the Christian lives a life of sin, then God will always overcome that sin with greater grace. After all, if God loves sinners, then why worry about sin? If God gives grace to sinners, then why not sin, sin more and receive more grace? I have heard some say or suggest possibly that it's, it's our job to sin, it's God's job to forgive. So I'll do my job and I'll let him do his job. Now you may think that's extreme. You may think that no one would actually say that, but actually... The very beginning of the 20th century, uh, a Russian monk, which many of you may have heard of, Gregory Rasputin. This is what he taught. He taught and lived the idea that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He believed that because those who sin require the most grace... But the most forgiveness, that a sinner who continues to sin with abandon receives more grace. And he, he proved that he believed that by the way he lived his life. He was a notorious sinner. And he taught that that was the way to salvation. Now that's taking one extreme and going to another extreme, I grant you that. But in a less extreme way, the, the question still does confront us. Is the plan of grace safe? Do we believe that possibly people might abuse grace? If God's salvation and his approval are given on the basis of faith instead of works, then won't we just say, well, I believe and live any way we want? From a purely natural or secular viewpoint, well, that is dangerous. But is that what the Word of God teaches? Some denominations emphasize the law because they're afraid that if they, if they just emphasize grace, that, that people will, will say that, well, that doesn't matter. 
And so they talk about the law. Well, let's dispel that notion right now. They're both, it's two extremes again. When Paul says that we to continue in sin, what he's saying is, it's the present active tense in the, in the, in the Greek. And so it's, it's this idea of a, a practice of habitual sin. That this is the lifestyle that you have chosen. And then he says, by no means should this be the case. And I love the, the emphatic Greek phrase he uses, which is, genome, which is absolutely not. Oh, no, 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 no. Heck no. By no means. This is not how you're to act. And then he says, because how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's an important principle. Matter of fact, if we're born again, we, when we believe Jesus for our salvation, our relationship with sin was permanently changed. It's no longer something we're bound to. We're bound to. We're no longer enslaved to it. We are set free from the law of sin and death. We are able to be obedient to God. We are able to, to be the kind of people He has created us to be by His grace. And so it becomes that point where when we choose to sin, we have literally chosen to sin. It was not something that we had to do. And Paul says, so how can we who died to sin still live in it? If we've died to sin, we cannot live in it any longer. It's not fitting to do so. And so... Paul actually has a lot to explain here. He's going to in a moment in our, today's passage of what he means by died to sin. But the general point is clear. If, if we have died to sin, we shouldn't live in it. And actually Ephesians 2, 1 says that we were dead. We were dead in sin. Now we are dead to it. And so as we come to today's passage, we see that Paul's going to give us an illustration of being dead to sin. And the illustration he chooses is baptism. And so, as we focus on this, this idea of baptism, our baptism, we, I don't want us to be confused. And he says here, let me, let me just read this. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul starts out by saying, don't you know? I mean, it's this idea of you should know this. This is the very basic, this is basic Christianity. You ought to know this, that all of us who were baptized were baptized in Christ Jesus. And this idea of baptism, the word baptism means to be immersed into, to be overwhelmed by it. It's kind of like when you're baptized in water you, and you're immersed, you're going under the water. That water's got you. If you breathe under there, there's a problem because it has, it has overwhelmed you. And that's this idea Paul is, is trying to convey. But he says, we were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And so the believer's baptism is really a dramatization. It's an acting out of the believer's immersion or their identification we are identified in two ways with Christ. We are identified to him in his death, 
but we are identified to him in his resurrection as well. Paul says we were buried with him. And as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. And so Paul builds on this idea of being, of being buried, of going under the water. But he also has this, this picture of coming up out of the water, of rising out of it, resurrection. Now, of course, baptism also has the connotation of cleansing, but that's not his point here. But what he's talking about is this illustration of a spiritual reality. But that reality, that baptism does not make it come to pass. If someone has not spiritually died and resurrected with Jesus, all the baptisms in the world will not accomplish this. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We believe it's an outward sign of an inward reality. But Paul's point is clear. Something dramatic and life-changing has happened in the life of the believer. You can't die and rise again without it changing your life. And the believer has a real spiritual experience. There is a real death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. And so Paul then considers the implications of this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This idea of being united to him, it's really a close union. It's the idea of a branch being grafted onto a tree. When that branch is grafted onto a tree, then the nourishment from the tree is where the lifeblood, the, the refreshment and the life comes to that branch now. It's, it's, it's no longer the branch itself. It is the tree that's feeding him. And so that branch becomes such a part of the tree, there's such a union with that tree, that that branch produces the fruit that that tree was intended to bear. And that's the, this is the, the way Paul is, is, is couching that here. It's, it kind of is really in line with John 15 where Jesus teaches this union, this coming together of the vine and the, the branches with the vine. And this, but this close union that Paul is talking about is both in his death and in his resurrection. God has both experiences for us. Paul expresses a similar idea in his own life in Philippians chapter 3 where, where he says in verses 10 and 11 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now who wouldn't want to be united with Christ in the power of the resurrection? The power and the glory of the resurrection. That's great. That's sweet. But this idea of fellowship with the suffering, experiencing the suffering too, not so much, right? But that's where it becomes extreme. And Paul is saying, you want to know him in this power? He wants you to know him in this power too. But it means you die. 
you die that you might be resurrected. And that's what he says. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our participation in the death of Christ, our dying with him in our baptism, makes our resurrection certain. It's a done deal. And he says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The death of the old man is an established fact. It happened spiritually when we were identified with Christ. The old man is, is the self that's patterned after Adam. This part of us is deeply ingrained with the desire to rebel against God and his commands. And the system of law is unable to deal with the old man. It can, it can show the old man what the righteous standard of God is. It can try to reform the old man and get him to turn over a new leaf. But the system of grace understands that the old man can never be reformed. He must be put to death. And for the believer, the old man dies with Jesus on the cross. The crucifixion of this old man is not something that you and I do. Jesus has done for us, done it for us on the cross, but we have to appropriate it. And, and brethren, this is where Christianity becomes tricky. Because if the old man is dead and buried and crucified with Christ, then that's how we ought to live. Because in place of the old man, the believer has a new man. A self that is instinctively obedient to God and pleasing to God. And this is the aspect of the person that the New Testament is building upon. And Paul writes even in Ephesians 4.24, The new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. And he writes again in Colossians 3.10, The new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And God uses our death to the old man or our, our sin nature to liberate us from sin. And I'm very much aware of this every day. Not just in my own life. I can hide that from you. And you're probably pretty good at that too. But my job, my, my full-time job is not as a priest. I am a priest and I do serve at a church in Roanoke, but, but as the associate. My full-time job is I run a homeless shelter for men in Roanoke. I have 58 men who live with us. And these are men that are alcoholics and drug addicts, all kinds of addictions, pornography. By and large, most of them are felons, and they've come to the end of their rope. The common thing that most guys come to our door with is not their addictions, but their hopelessness. They come into our shelter, and some of them are come there because probation or parole has sent them, and they come there thinking, so it's come to this, has it? And the world tells them, yeah, it really has. We're not going to employ you. We don't really want you on the street. As a matter of fact, if you go back to prison, we're good with that. And that's how they're treated. But we can't do that. Jesus won't allow it. I, I, I tell my church all the time, look, I want you to understand that Jesus was here in the flesh. And he is with us. We are his body. <laughs> 
But if Jesus himself were here in his body right now, him in the flesh, then he would not be hanging out with you and I in church. He would be at the homeless shelters. He would be at places where people were crying out, Is there even a God? And we are his body. We are his people. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his voice. We are his face. And that's where we need to be. See, the flesh is the problem in this battle against sin. But our flesh, if we have died with Christ, has been crucified with Christ. I mean, the the reality is, and let's be honest, I mean, the the old man has been crucified, but the flesh is still sort of active, right? I mean, the old man left a pretty deep imprint on the flesh. And our culture is screaming at us to, they want the church to conform to them, not us speaking into their lives. When they... And many churches nowadays have bought into that mentality, that seeker-friendly. They want the the unbeliever to come here and not know he's a sinner because we didn't tell him. They just want him to feel comfortable with us. And look, I don't want to beat him up because I got my own junk. I'm as big a mess as anybody. But I got to run to Jesus every day and I need to let them know that it works. That it's not just something that I do because it's a habit or a crutch. They've got to see the reality that in my life, the old man is indeed died. And one of the greatest ways they can see that in me is my ability in Christ to love them. And to honor the image that God has imprinted upon them of himself. And try to let Jesus restore that image. And Paul says, we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. I remember some of you are my age or maybe a little older. Most of you are not. But you might remember 1960, the the movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. I like that movie a lot. At one point in the movie, Spartacus, who was a a slave who who led a rebellion against Rome... Kirk Douglas says this as Spartacus. He says, death is the only freedom a slave knows. And that's why he's not afraid of it. Look, when we've been set free because the old man has died with Jesus, and we do not fear this cross that Jesus tells us to take up and follow him with. I mean, Jesus, we don't take the cross up and follow him to Calvary. Last time I said that in a sermon, I said Calgary. But there were no Canadians in the, uh, in the audience. There's no big deal. But, but Jesus did not ask us to follow him by taking up the cross to Calvary. What he did at Calvary, only he could do. What he asked us to do was follow him in obedience to the Father. To surrender our lives. To have the same model that he had when he came here. That he became the servant. The master became the servant. I mean, I love this, and John, this, this picture of Jesus washing the feet. But you've got to pay attention to that in the context of what he said in John chapter 5. I only do what I see the Father doing. We serve a God who would wash our feet. We serve a God who loves us enough to not just die for us, but to continually love us in the midst of our mess. And how can we do anything other than that? I love 
This idea, what Paul says, the life that he lives, he lives to God. I love what Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon writes. He said, if God has given to you and to me an entirely new life in Christ, how can that new life spend itself after the fashion of the old life? Share the spiritual, shall the spiritual live as the carnal? How can you that were servants of sin but have been made free by precious blood go back to old slavery? This change in the life of those who have, who have supposedly surrendered their lives to Christ, who have been buried with Him in baptism. Something new has to happen. It's always been that way. The prophet Ezekiel said in foretelling the, the result of what it was going to be like when the Messiah came and did what He was going to do, Ezekiel writes in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I will give, or it's God speaking through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise that God has made to us in Christ. This should be the result of our lives. And Paul closes out our text this morning with a very practical application, but hard to live into. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Years ago, Teresa and I, um, I'll be 60 in August. And I went into ministry, in full-time ministry, at the age of 54, I think it was. Well, 52. I'd been a truck driver all my life, most of my adult life. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't born a truck driver. but um, And Teresa ran with me, coast to coast, my dear wife, the, the, the beautiful woman on the back row. That's my dear wife of 41 years. And she used to run with me. We were in all 48 states and all of Canada. We had, a, we had a good time a lot of times. And, but God called us into the ministry, and, and I didn't really want to do it because it didn't make a lot of sense to me, humanly speaking. But through a series of, of, of things that God did that made it happen, I ended up becoming the associate rector of a church called Orchard Hills in, in Roanoke. And stayed there for... Three and a half years, and I really felt like I needed to go back and at least go to seminary. <laughs> that I, needed, I needed to do that, I mean, for my own sanity. And so we went back, we went up to Trinity School for Ministry up in, uh, in Ambridge, PA, and, and we graduated in 2011, came down to Roanoke, but my job was no longer available, and so that's when I started applying for jobs. And now, I had gone to seminary, and I'd had 40-some years uh, as a Christian, and I said, well, I, I want to be a pastor. And God said, I, I want you to go to work for a homeless shelter. I didn't know that at that time. And, and frankly, God never tells us what he's going to do in advance, does he? Because if he did, we'd run. But I was offered a job up in Woodbridge, Virginia. An Anglican church up there. Actually, the bishop of up there is his church. He's the bishop. John Guernsey is the bishop of the Mid-Atlantic now for, for ACNA. And they were going to offer me the job, and I wanted to go. Her not so much, but I, I wanted her to go with me. <laughs> and uh, so we were working on that aspect of it. 
And a friend of mine said, no, the Salvation Army has a, has a homeless shelter. I think you would be a great director. I said, I, w- I think that I wouldn't. And so they had taught me into at least talking to them, and I did. They had like a three-hour conversation. I thought I'd never get out of there. I did not want the job, but I, to shut them up, I filled out the application. I said, well, what does it pay? And they told me, I went, you've got to be kidding me. I can't, I won't get out of bed for that. He said, well, how much do you have to have? And I told him, he said, I'm not sure that can happen. I said, well, it would, see, this is not meant to be. And so through a process of, of us going before the Lord saying, but Father, what do you want us to do? It's not what I want, but what do you want? You brought us this far and I'm old enough to know that I'm not going to be kicking in doors anymore. Lord, when you open up the door, I'm going to walk through that door because I want to be doing what you want to be blessing. And so through a a series of events, we realized that God was calling us and they were willing to pay what I said. And so three, three years ago, we started as director there. Now, let me tell you what's happened. We've changed the direction of the shelter. Now we're bringing Christ into the middle of it. Last year, we baptized nine men. And I've had guys that are broken. I've had guys that, that I've had to love them when they ordinarily I would have wanted them to leave. I've had guys who did crazy things that I've had to sit there and be the face of Christ for them. I've had to pray for them and I've had to go home and I've had to weep for them. I'm not a crier. I don't like crying. I was always raised that men didn't cry, but these men have broken my heart time and time and time again. They've hurt me. And I've had to go back and love them. I've had guys that have left and went right back to their wallowing in their mess. And I've had to, to find them and go get them and bring them back. When everything in my personal structure was said, let them wallow. But that's not Jesus in me. Jesus said, go get them. Last year I had a guy that I had the, the absolute joy of leading him to Christ. And discipling him over a period of time. Had cancer. And a couple days before he died, he came into my office. He was skin and bones by that time. And and it was February, and he was cold. And he said, Mike, I am cold. Would you hold me? I said, yeah. I sat down. I had a coat on. I just kind of put it around him, and I held him, and we just wept together. A couple days later, he died. I had a chance to share Christ with his family who had dis- disowned him. And God's brought healing into their lives because of Christ. The point is, we had to get out of the way. And we had to remember we had been crucified with Christ. We had been buried with him in our, in our baptism. And the only way we were going to be resurrected is if we walked in obedience. Because that's what it means to put the old man to death. I never would experience the things we've seen the past three years without it. But I am persuaded that God is calling us as his people to live radically, to live extremely, building God's kingdom here on earth. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer all the time, don't we? Let the kingdom of earth come. Let your kingdom be on earth as it is in heaven. 
We are his body. We are the ones to be doing that. It's always been that way from the Garden of Eden. We are his image. And the world is not going to know that God is real and that God loves them and that God can save them. God can deal with their mess unless we become that living presence. And everything that Jesus taught, look in the Beatitudes, Matthews 5 through 7. Everything Jesus taught was instructing not how we obey the law, but how we demonstrate that the kingdom of God indeed came to earth. Will you do that this morning? Will you invite the Lord to do whatever he needs to do in your life? We are, do, you, do you want that so bad that you're willing to say, Jesus, I don't know what it's going to mean, but I'm willing to invite you to do whatever you want to do in my life, to make me into the man or the woman you have called me to be. Lord, I want to experience this. I want you to move in me. I want to know what it is to die to my sin, but, but to live into the power of the resurrection. I encourage you to invite the Lord into that. Let us pray.